We're in Acts 19, and I call this the riot. This morning I got here, and Pastor, I mean, Brother uh, Bobby Sims asked me, um, any particular verses? I said, nope, all of them. He was like, well, that's why it says Acts 19 then. Uh, yeah. And uh, we've already covered in here all the way down through verse 20. And I will, in talking about it, back up to verse 18 a little bit. But I'm going to talk about this riot that happens at the, at the end of chapter 19. And, and um, one thing that I noticed that when, when I was a kid, I was told there are three things that you don't talk to people about, especially strangers, but you, you don't even talk to other people. And that's religion, politics, and their money. Anybody ever heard that? Don't talk to people about religion. I don't argue about, I don't talk about religion and politics. You hear that all the time. And if you ask somebody about their money, well, that's insulting. I mean, it's none of your business, really. And, and that's true. But here's what's so funny. This riot is because the church affected all three things in Ephesus. All three of them got turned upside down on their head. And the church never did a protest march. They never appealed to the government authorities. They just were the church. And it so changed the community that a riot broke out with them just showing up and learning about the Lord and praying. It's kind of strange. So I want you to see it. It all begins uh, when, when Paul runs into 12 men who had never heard about Christ. They had heard about John the Baptist. They were even baptized by John's baptism. But they had never heard about Jesus. Again, I already preached that sermon. And uh, so Paul explains that Jesus is Messiah. John talked about that he'd come, he had lived, he had died, he was risen again. And now that he has gone, he sent the Holy Spirit to be a part with us. And these 12 men believed in Christ and Paul or baptizes them uh, in the name of Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit. And then the next thing that happens is these seven itinerant evangelists, probably just Jewish evangelists, see Paul casting out demons and they try to cast a demon out of a guy. They say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? jump on them, beat them up. All seven guys run from the house, wounded and, and without clothes on, bleeding. And I don't know if it's for these two reasons or not, but there in these verses, it says, um, uh, in, beginning back in verse 18, um, also many of them, let me back up to 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was talked about, lifted up. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. It means they, they admitted they were doing it. Their dark hearts that I told you this coming Thursday night is the high black Sabbath uh, for, for uh, the satanic church. And whether you believe it or not, it's a reality and, it does work, and they do, do these things. And a number of, the, and, and if you're reading your horoscope, uh, you're a part of it, or if you... If you believe in mediums and people can talk to the dead and all that, you're part of that. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And after this, Paul decides to leave. And that's where we pick up the story. So I want you to stand up and I want to read uh, beginning in verse 21 through 40. It's 20 verses. But I'll refer to them, and, and uh, you can keep looking back, make you familiar with them. Now, after these events, Paul resolved his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. 
And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. It's going to be two years. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, or Diana is the name of the god or goddess, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, and with the workmen in similar trades, he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded many and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. How dare he say the truth? We live in that society today. Amen. When you say a man is a man, a woman's a woman... You are phobic of some sort, and you hate people. Excuse me? <laughs> I thought this was called common sense. God's made with hands are not God's is stable thinking, horse sense, right? And there is danger not only for this trade of ours, notice the money, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Well, she's so great, how are they going to depose her? She whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging out with them Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And Paul wished to go in amongst the crowd and... I, said, I know it says among, but I'm from the south. Um, among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, people live in Asia, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. And there comes a time where you've got to use common sense. Paul would have waded into that mob and been killed, and his friends held him back. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, verse 32, because the mob never knows what it's talking about. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out one voice, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Now today, mobs have access to clubs and guns, cars to overturn and burned, storefront windows. They didn't have anything then, so they spent two hours just yelling, Greatest Diana of the Ephesians! Greatest Diana! Which I would have gotten bored with that after about a minute, but anyway. Verse 35, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper or of, of the Ephesians, is the temple keeper of the great god Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. True about Diana. And, there's, and Luke puts that in there to say, Paul never said a word about it. He just talked to people about Jesus. Okay? You waste time talking about false gods, you ought to talk about the real God. If therefore, verse 38, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it'll be settled. It 
shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Would you pray with me, Lord? We thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can learn from your word. And we ask, Lord, for your presence to be with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, for indeed, um, there is nothing we can learn apart from your grace and your help. So show us your word and your will, and help us to see what you are about and what we should be about. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and y'all can be seated. If you take something home with you today, I want you to take home that when the church is the church, the community changes. If the church would just be the church, it would change the community. The only strategy they had was proclaiming the gospel and teaching people about Jesus. I do want you to back up uh, in chapter 19, um, that to verse um, 10. This continued for two years, so all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What continued? Look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn, continued in unbelief, speaking evil away before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Now, Paul's talking in the synagogue. He did that for about three months. They finally get tired of him, kick him out. And Paul doesn't take his marbles and go home. It says he took his, the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years. So Paul stays in Ephesus two years and every day, he's got a school of discipleship, if you will. I don't know what else to call it. Where he is teaching the truth of the gospel. And as he's teaching people, they're going out teaching other people. And as other people are learning about the gospel, they're being saved. And the Bible lets us know, in two years, all of Asia Minor heard the gospel. And many of them responded. And so, Paul, and I just want to make a point about Paul... Because I have a simple three things today. You've got a committed missionary, you've got uh, a consecrated church, and you've got a confronted culture. All right? Paul's a committed missionary. What was Paul's heartbeat? His heartbeat was the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he's all about. Th these events started with two big activities, two big moves of God. Um, they were totally separated. Uh, events, the people getting baptized finally learned fully about Jesus and this demonic thing happening. But I can imagine, and the Bible doesn't say this is why Paul started that, but I can imagine in Paul's mind he's thinking, wow, there's a lot of people who've heard something about Jesus but don't know about Jesus. I need to teach them. And then this, this casting out of demons that didn't happen and this, these guys getting beat up and everybody hears about it. Everybody gets scared like, oh my goodness, those exorcists couldn't cast out those demons. What in the world? Paul takes advantage of that and he's teaching people about the gospel. And he's committed to the church. If you keep your finger there and turn forward in your Bible to Romans, the book of Romans. And uh, first of all, in chapter 1 of Romans... Uh, Great introduction to this book. Listen to it. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. Now, by the way, that word servant, especially here, has a greater meaning than your mind lets you go to when it used the word servant. It means slave. It means the guy who decided, I want to be a slave for life. You can punch a big old hole in my ear. They put the, the ear against the doorpost and punch an awl through it. That is the word Paul uses. I am a ear-pierced slave for Christ. I've got the mark that I belong to Christ forever. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
Paul understood why he was set apart, why he was called. And if you'll flip back to verse to chapter 15 of Romans, it's the next to the last chapter. Let me just point out a couple of things about Paul. He continued in the mission of Christ. In verses 8 and 9, Paul is writing to the Romans and says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul saw that he was separated by God to the gospel to preach to Gentile people. God took the most Jewish guy alive to preach to people that weren't Jewish. So that they would know, hey, this isn't a Jewish thing. Paul is telling you something that does spring out of Judaism uh, as, as, according to God's plan. But it's the completion of God's plan. So he continues. Christ came to say, it's not about worshiping in the temple. It is about that I am the sacrificial lamb. As the Bible says in John 1.29, behold the lamb of God, John the Baptist said, that takes away the sin of the world. I'm the sacrificial lamb. And you won't worship on a mountain. You won't worship in a temple. But you will worship me wherever you are in spirit and in truth. And Paul is going around the world to tell people, you don't need a certain priest. You don't need a certain place. You need a certain personal relationship with a risen Savior. And you can be a worshiper of God yourself. And Paul is eat up with that story. He's eat up with that message because he was the biggest law keeper that ever lived. He kept the law faithfully. He could never be accused of not keeping the law. So much so that he goes after Christians to kill them for daring to believe that a person could be free in Christ. And Jesus has to knock him down on a road and say, dude, isn't it hard for you to keep rebelling against me? You need to follow me. And, Jesus, and Paul says, okay, but who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Paul goes in the city and he, God sends a prophet to Paul who's been blinded to receive a sight. And, and God told uh, the man to go, he said, and you're going to tell him the things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul, everywhere he went, just about, he suffered. Even in today's text, as we read, he said, I got to get to Jerusalem and then I want to go to Rome. He got to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. The government sent him to Rome to be tried. And, and so Paul is understanding what God's doing. He goes to new places. He doesn't like going to old places. Look at, look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul said, I've, we've covered Asia. I want to get further out. I want to go to Rome. And then, even further than that, look at verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness, I'm sorry, in the blessing of Christ. Um, I, I must have written down the wrong thing. But Paul says, I want to go beyond you into Spain in those verses. I just... I wrote down the reference wrong. Sorry about that. You'll see it in a minute and you, somebody's going to yell it out at me. But he says, I'm going to go. But here's what I learned in studying this, that if those people believed that was the end of the world. They thought if you got to Spain, there was nothing past Spain. Now, what happened? Paul gets arrested. And this is a further sermon. But those Roman soldiers get sent to England. And the gospel goes into England and spreads out of Spain and northward of there. And then Paul saturated where he was. Verse 19. Uh, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Lyconium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul makes a statement there that we kind of miss. You, in the back of your Bible, probably there's a page that says, the missionary journeys of Rome of Paul. One, two, three, and then his journey to, to Rome. The missionary journeys of Paul. Well, 
guess what? He did more missionary journeys than those four things. And what he just said runs the circuit. That he went there, up, down, into North Africa, across, and back up. He ran this circuit and he said, well, I've done everything I can do here. Now I want to get to Rome and then I want to get to Spain. I want to keep moving. And, and again, uh, in, in verse 23... This is the reason why I've so often been doing to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing. There it is. As I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul said, I'm going to get to you up there in Rome and Italy. And then, dude, I'm going to Spain. I'm going to the end of the world to preach the gospel. This is Paul's heartbeat. Now, here's a question. Is it Paul's heartbeat because it was Paul? Or is that Paul's heartbeat because that was... The purpose of Christ. Remember, he's called to be an apostle of Jesus, separate to the gospel. It, it is Paul's calling, but isn't that every Christian's calling? You shall receive power, and after you do, and when the Spirit comes, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. This is the heartbeat of Jesus. And Paul, this committed missionary, has the passion to tell people about Christ. So Paul sets up a training place back there in Acts 19. In verses 8 through 10, I've already read that. And for two years, he's training people what it means to be a Christian who can train other people. Now, here's what churches do to people sometimes. And, 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 and I know it, it's, it's, it's difficult. We make your life so busy, you don't have time to be a Christian. Now, I didn't write out how I was going to say that, and that's just how it came out that time. So I may never say that that way again. But we make people into good church members. We don't make them into good Christians. In fact, we make you feel bad about the stuff we make you do because you don't have time to do what you ought to be doing, so we make you feel bad about not doing what you ought to do because we kept you so busy you couldn't do it anyway. Now, I'm just confessing here. And we, and we equate activity with discipleship or edification. Now, those are big words. They're, discipleship is kind of a Bible word. It never says discipleship, but it talks about disciples and discipling people. That means learning, teaching, so that you practice what you're learning. Not just knowledge, but action. In the New Testament, there's no such thing as going to school, taking a test, getting a degree. No, you went to school, you learned how to do what you were doing, and then you were doing it, okay? And the, and the degree was, hey, he's pretty good at doing that. He must have learned how, right? And so, but today, you can go to school, you can get all kinds of degrees and never know a thing what to do. You can go to your college and you can go to your school, but if you ain't got Jesus, you're just an educated fool, right? And we, and we, 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 we pour knowledge into kids, but we never teach them how to do the things. And we do the same thing at church. We've adopted the world's idea that, hey, let's teach them everything about the Lord. Good, now you know it. Good job. But we never teach them how to do and again, but we do a bunch of activities sometimes that may not result in you looking more like Jesus. Now, that's just a confession. We want to work against that. We want to do something. I mean, if you're like me, you're older now. You've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Our grandfathers, our fathers, our grandfathers, they had their own issues that they had to deal with. We've got maybe a slightly different set of issues today. But in our society today, it's very, very, very difficult to be a one-income family, even if the one guy or girl makes a lot of money. That's just true. 
But we bought into it so much, we all just do it without thinking about it. So when we have children, we drop them off at daycare, go to work, pick them up from daycare, get home. What are we going to do about supper? Do something fast or buy something on the way home. Got to get them through their studies, get them in bed, because tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock, I got to be up to get ready to make their lunch, get them back. And it becomes a, a wheel in a mouse cage, right? And that's tough. And then we say, oh, and by the way, on Thursday night, we want you to come back to church because we want to do this extra thing. Or Wednesday night or Monday night or Saturday or whatever day it is. And you come and you don't get a lot out of it, but we make you feel guilty if you don't come. So you can't come back. If we do that, I want to count for something. And so young families today have to figure out how do we say no to something so that we can say yes to the Lord's will in our life. Because our passion ought to be Jesus. And if our passion is Jesus, we'll figure out a way to do it. I've been on some mission trips. And, and you know, as like any of you, my wife and I have decided, hey, we want to do this. And here's what I've learned about going places, doing things, setting a goal is this. You don't figure out how you're going to do it before you decide to do it. It's when you decide this is what I ought to do, you figure out how you're going to do it. Does that make sense? I'm not saying run off a cliff, even though that's my personality. I'll just jump. Hey, woo. By the way, it's not going to rain Friday night. It may rain up to 6 o'clock, but it's not going to rain from Thursday night. Thank you. It's not going to rain between 6 and 8.30. You said that's a mighty bold thing. Okay, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm not going to say that's a prophecy from God. I just, I'm trusting God for that. And I believe it'll happen. So y'all come on out. But, but we have to figure out we're going to do it. Well, what if it rains? Well, it actually might even snow. <laughs> it's going to be cold. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to do it. Because that's what we're going to do. And if we got to adjust quickly, we'll adjust quickly. But we're just going to do it because this is what we feel like the Lord wants us to do so that we can minister our community so that they might let us talk to them even more about Christ. Paul was so committed. He's going to do whatever it takes to get the gospel out. And so I ask, what is your passion? To follow Christ ought to be your consuming passion. Not to follow, an, I believe in church membership. I just finished a new members class where I was preaching that the, this is Jesus' idea. He died for the church and we ought to be committed to it. But we are committed to Christ and that's why we're committed to the church. We're not committed to the church and that's why we're committed to Christ. And there's a vast difference in those two things. And so, to live for what Christ came and offered his life for is, is not a bad thing. That's worthy of our attention. And so, we have to have as our passion Christ. And we get to decide what is going to be our consuming passion. You ever thought about that? I see a lot of different passions in people. and They, they love doing what they do. And, and there's value in those things. I'm not saying there's not. We need Christians in every area of, of the community of the life of, of the business world of the secular world I'm not against that I, I believe that's very much needed but we have to remember that that is all affected by our passion for Christ and how we do what we do is measured by Christ one of the one of the great examples of just living a godly life is the basketball coach at UVA University of Virginia, for those of you who don't know. They won the national championship last year. The school, being smart, says, we don't want to lose that dude. Let's give him a, several million more dollars. He is a committed, passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And not even a Baptist. Can you imagine that? 
Hard for me to imagine. Had a guy tell me one time his, his church was about one-third Baptist. I said, so is mine. The rest of us are saved. But he said, I don't need it. We have enough. The Bible says in Hebrews to have contentment, to live godly in Christ Jesus with contentment is wealth. He said, why don't you give that to all the other athletic endeavors of the school? I'm sure they could use some help. The world went, what? Just by living out Jesus. They still talk about it. He turned down a raise. I mean, you give me a million dollars, you know, I'm not going to turn that down. They gave, want to give him multiple millions of dollars. And he goes, no, I don't need that. I got plenty. And then started giving stuff away. He, he, and right after that, he and his wife made this huge donation of a half million dollars to something. Said, take that money, spread it out amongst the other athletics in here. By the way, we're going to write this check and help these people. Just living out Christ, what an example of what it means. And why? Because his passion is not basketball, his passion is Christ. And he lives out Christ through helping young men know who Jesus is, endeavoring to teach them, help them become young men. And oh, by the way, God blessed him to win a national championship so everybody in the country that follows basketball, college basketball, would know there is a God who sits in heaven who put on a body and came to earth to live amongst us and live a perfect life and die on a cross and be resurrected so we could know that God. I hope that helps make the point. Well, Paul is a committed missionary, but there's also a consecrated church. Remember we read, they burned all their stuff. They brought in all their valuables and said, uh-uh, no more, boom. And when the riot breaks out, <laughs> this guy starts saying, they're costing us money. Why? Because they made silver statues of their God and sold them. And that's how they made their money. And he's mad, not because they don't believe in Diana or Artemis, as we understand it, but because he was costing them money. But they had never gone and said, don't buy those idols. God had done the work, and they went, we don't want these idols anymore. Did you know, I, in studying about this, I learned an interesting fact. Ephesus has this great big thing to Diana, you know, big Colosseum thing, big temple, I should say. These guys are making silver statues after silver, because they got them in tall, medium, and large. I mean, you know, whatever, small, whatever. Whatever you can afford. Oh, you can't get the 50-shackle one here. I got this good one for 15 shackles. You can get that, you know. I don't know how they talked. I'm just saying. They, they were making tons of money on these idols. Did you know they can't find one silver statue of Diana today? They found, you know, clay ones that ought to have broke up and fallen apart. They can't find. Now, they say, well, obviously, you know, as people invaded and went through and all that, they took the silver, melted it down, whatever, maybe. But guess what? God made sure they found all of them so far <laughs> so that we couldn't find any today. Oh, how great is Diana of the Ephesians? All the, her silver idols that he was so... Here's my deal. In a hundred years, where, where's all your money going to be? You don't know. <laughs> Somebody else is going to spend it if you saved it. And so these people realized, I've got to follow Christ. And they brought all their stuff and they burned it and they got rid of it. And so this, these people are getting upset because all of a sudden they're not making money. And the church never, never preached a sermon against Diana and had a Diana or Artemis. I, I just know her as Diana. I hate, uh, I, I don't hate, but I'm not used to saying Artemis. But uh, let's, let's take all of that. And let's burn it. We're going to have this big bonfire at the church. We're going to, everybody's going to burn their statue. They didn't do that. 
They're talking about Jesus and they just got rid of them and quit buying them. Say, man, I'm glad we don't live with that today. You see, when, when the church saw the reality of the enemy and that, and that demonic thing, they quit playing games with the devil's toys. And the question for us is, how many of us are playing games with the devil's toys? How many of us are consumed with our electronic devices? Or we've fallen into pornography, we've fallen into drinking, we've fallen into something that harms us and we give into that and it's a tool of our enemy and we willfully let the enemy in to hurt us. See, the enemy of my friend is my enemy and Satan is the enemy of Christ. Right? I can't say I love God if I don't hate sin. In fact, the Bible says love God and hate sin. The King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, of making many books there's no end, and much study is awareness to the flesh. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. That's what you're called to do. You're called to fear God, which means find out what he said and keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he said, in a greater commandment I give you, a new commandment, love each other. Love each other. Don't, don't just love God. Love each other while you're loving God. The Bible lets us know that all Satan ever wants from you, and he'll use a silver statue to get it from you, is to steal, kill, and destroy you. Silver is a silver card or a platinum card or a gold card or a sapphire card, right? And we worship possessions that we can't afford, so we put them on a credit card. Can't afford it now, you can't afford it later, by the way. And all Satan wants to do is destroy us, and that knowledge ought to cause us to clean up our life a little bit and go, wait a minute, what, what is the devil trying to do? Get rid of the stuff that will pollute your life. And I hesitate to even name some of these things because people take that the wrong way. We, we, we start doing, we become checklist Christians. Oh, I don't smoke, drink, cuss, chew, run people to do. I must be okay. Yeah, I got rid of this and oh boy, I'm, no, that didn't make you right with God, but it sure will help keep you from becoming not right with God. Why would you make it even more difficult to follow God by welcoming into your life something that'll hurt you? And so we ought, to, we ought to clean that up. Sometimes in our selfish self, we say, oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> okay. But if it hurts you a little bit, it's going to hurt you a lot later, right? A Krispy Kreme donut once a month ain't going to hurt me, but when I eat a dozen a day, that's going to be painful, right? And here's the deal, if I eat one a month, I'm going to eat a dozen a day. I just know me. I can't quit once I start, so I can't start. And if you are starting, you've got to stop it somewhere. And, and you've got to take sometimes drastic measures. That's why Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He didn't mean to actually pluck out your eye. He means get rid of the stuff you're looking at you shouldn't be looking at. If your hand offends you, quit going to the place where your hand's active doing whatever it is that's offending you. Quit doing that. Just <laughs> stop it. And there's a funny thing about that, but just don't do that anymore. And when these people got rid of all the things that they should not be playing with without a protest or march, they changed the economics of their area. Why are restaurants open on Sunday today? I don't know. If you're my age, you remember when things were not open on Sunday. We called it the blue laws. How many of y'all remember blue laws? Yeah. My cousin, as a cop, he would go into a 
open grocery store and people started first opening, you still couldn't buy any alcohol on Sundays when, when they first started relaxing the blue law. So he'd go in, put a six-pack on the counter. They sold it to him. He'd shut down the grocery store. He wasn't a Christian. He was a cop. Well, he was a Christian, I believe, but he would do that kind of stuff. Why are they open? Because you and I go to them. And I go to them. I'm telling you, I do that. Now, do we have to be closed on Sunday? Not necessarily. But I believe God honors us if we will pick a day and say, this one's for God and God alone. I do believe that. You know, Starbucks had a run-in this past year. They ran afoul of some special interest group or the other. And so they closed all their Starbucks store for one day to give them moral training. Chick-fil-A does that every week. It's called Sunday. <laughs> I saw a funny little cartoon. It said Mega Church puts Chick-fil-A in their lobby. Still closed on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Which, when you think about it, really gets funnier the more you think about it. The church confessed and repented of their sin. They brought all the things. They said, yeah, I'm guilty of that. I've been playing with... I don't want to let go of that. There's something fun about, ooh, this is mysterious. Ooh, we're talking to the dead. Ooh, I'm talking to some kind of spirit. They're demonic. They are demons. You're playing with a demon. In this instance, in 19, these people were like, yeah, on the side, I'm checking out my horoscopes. I know what to do today. Man, if you are checking your horoscope to decide what to do, you got the wrong advisor. This is what should tell you what you're doing today. Not the horoscope, which is a horror. And I'm just picking on that. I ought to be picking on a lot of other things. So they destroyed their temptation. And Paul says, I need to set up a school here so these people learn the truth. And he did. And every day for two years. And it confronted the culture. I've already talked about all of that. Economically, their money dried up. Why? Because people quit buying idols. Politically, it, it affected them. And people quit worshiping Diana, started worshiping Jesus. And the guy that was in charge of the temple is like... Well, actually, it was just the guy that made the idols. Like, my money's dried up. And these people, and he said, are blaspheming. Even the government said that he's never said a word against your little God that you made a statue of. He's just been telling them about a different God. And people are following that God and forgetting your God. Now, that's the secular understanding of it. And he doesn't cause Paul in the church to answer politically. He basically says there's nothing illegal here. It's just a different religious message. In fact, he said, these are just other religious people going about their daily business. You go about yours. May the true God win. He didn't say that. But I want to point out something. Something very tragic happens. It, and it's the last bit of 19. Here, here's what is tragic. Verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly, and they went home. Why is that tragic? Because the church flourishes more under persecution than it does under freedom. Ephesus is this mighty disciple-making machine. This is in the 50s A.D. The last thing we hear about Ephesus is about 40 or 50 years later in Revelation Chapter 2, to the angel or the messenger, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, write, The word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have tested those 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You've not grown weary, but I have this thing against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Somewhere in the next 40 or 50 years, they lost the why of the what. They were still doing the what, but they didn't know the why. They were founded under Paul's ministry, and he's a passionate follower of Christ, and that passion is passed on. And the church is passionate, so much so, radically changes their community. And 50 years later, Jesus has say, you've quit loving me. You're loving what you're doing more than you love me. And if you go today to where Ephesus was, you will find a Muslim temple. You won't find a thriving church. You see, we got to pass it on. One thing that I want to do in the next year, I'm guilty of not telling you stuff, so I want to tell you. One thing I want to do, beginning very soon with some leaders of our church, is we're going to start looking at some disciple, ways of discipling men. Nothing against you ladies, but I believe strong men lead to strong families, lead to strong churches. So we got to help our men. I need help. I want these guys to help me, and I want to help them. And so we'll start there. I'm sure there'll be other great things that happen, but we're going to start there. And over the next year, we're going to just begin to teach men. And I'm not 100% sold on any one way to do that, but, but I got a good idea how we want to do it. And, our, and, and some of our leaders already said, yep, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And we're just going to start learning and growing and helping one another. And as we understand the process, not the, we don't want a program, we want a process. Hopefully, we will all grow more passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Because that's the goal. I know today I've been saying, you ought to do this, ought not do that. I get that. But here's what solves all of that. If you just passionately decide that I'm going to passionately love Christ. That he will be the focus of my life. And he's first, he's last, he's everything in between. In my job, in my marriage in my parenting, in my friendships, everything I do, everywhere I go, where I work, where I play, it's all about Jesus. And if we'll decide that, we'll start getting where we need to be. And we all need to, every once in a while, do a checkup of ourselves, right? So that we can put ourselves back in the right place. And, and I know I desperately need men to be my friends and to help me. And I figure that most men are like me. They need that too. And so we're going to start doing that, making that available. Not everybody will want to do it. That's fine. You don't have to. But those who do it, I think, will be benefited. And I think this church will be benefited from that. And so just, it's very, I mean, we hadn't even started yet. So I'm saying stuff hadn't even happened yet. You know, when are we doing that? I want, okay, great. We're coming, we're coming, we're coming. Okay. But, but I've already started talking about, we're already getting this stuff in. We're going to, we're going to start up. So pray for that. Pray for ourselves. Because if we're going to affect the community, we got to be the right people first. You know, I, I, it, was, it was really hard to preach that sermon because it started with a committed missionary, a consecrated missionary, right? That's me. And if I don't get it right, you can't get it right. And some days, let me change that. Most days, I don't get it right. 
Paul said, I'll quote him and apply it to me. It's a worthy saying and full and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And if I don't have that attitude, I think I'm okay. I will let the devil slip some stuff in that gets worse and worse and worse and worse as it goes, right? And so I want us to be a committed church, but that starts when we help each other look more like Jesus. Would you agree with that? I think we can all agree to that. Church will look more like Jesus if all of us look more like Jesus. So we want to do that. Uh, usually I have some things for you to do. I, I've kind of already told you all that. And that killing favor was that they didn't get arrested. Who is one person that you might could affect this week? Who is your one? Who is somebody that you can talk to about Jesus? Maybe they're a struggling Christian. Maybe they don't know Christ. Who is one person? I ask it as a question. I'm telling you, figure that out. Who is somebody you regularly run into that you can help? On an ongoing basis, not just this week, but ongoing. And then, will you take advantage of any new discipling opportunities come up at this church? This is long term. This is over the next year, not just this week. As you start hearing about, hey, these guys are getting together, and, and I want to do that in every way we possibly can so that every man can participate. If you can't do it when I can do it, I'll come to do it when you can do it. And then... This week, live to complete Jesus' mission and live a repentant life. Live your life so that when God makes you aware that, man, you ought not be doing that, you just get rid of it. You're just like, you're right, I'm going to burn that, whether figuratively or, you know, spiritually or actually. Just dedicate to God and say, I'm dedicated to God, I don't need this in my life and get rid of it. Figure a way, because if Christ is your passion, that'll order everything around you. What Jesus said that, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So if you make Christ your treasure, your passion, everything in your life starts organizing around that passion so that your life becomes ordered and looks like Christ. So let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, what a passage you gave us here. Lord, it is an amazing Amazing truths that you lay on us today.